You know, ours is a very unusual and, and interesting business, and um, I've been in it a long time and still love coming to work, and it's very different every day, and um, yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. Hello and welcome to Inside Political Risk. On this episode, we're going to be taking you into an industry that you might not think is fun and exciting and makes you want to go to work in the morning, but is absolutely fascinating and is an underappreciated element of the globalized economy. We're going to be talking about political risk insurance. Now, this is an area that may be getting way more important in the coming months. Coronavirus and the oil crash have contributed to an economic situation where a lot of projects and a lot of companies around the world may be starting to see their businesses fail and starting to draw on insurance. Now, some of those actions that cause those businesses to fail could be political in nature, and so the political risk insurance industry will be a key part of whatever is happening over the next 12 months. So to learn more about that industry and to figure out where it might be going in a time of great global uncertainty, I spoke with Price Lowenstein. He is the founder and president of Sovereign Risk Insurance, a specialty risk outfit based in Bermuda and part of the larger Chubb Insurance Group. They focus on insuring banks who are lending to sovereign or sub-sovereign entities in the emerging markets, corporates, and private equity who are investing in emerging markets, and then also reinsuring export development agencies. So he has deep experience within the industry, and I was very happy that he was able to take the time to speak with me to explain what it is and where is it going. Thanks so much uh, for joining me. Can you uh, just introduce yourself a little bit so that people kind of know who you are and, and your experience with political risk? Um, sure. Um, thanks, Chris. Yeah, my name is Price Lowenstein, and I'm the president and CEO of Sovereign Risk Insurance. We are uh, a company that's based in Bermuda. We're owned by uh, Chubb, the big international insurer. We're wholly owned subsidiary of Chubb Bermuda. Uh, I started the company uh, 23 years ago in Bermuda. And um, we've grown to become one of the biggest and, and kind of leaders in our field. Yeah. So how did you get into political risk insurance? It's not often the most common thing for people to just fall into. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And, um, you know, it's a pretty strange uh, and long and winding story. But um, it was largely accidental. I mean, I kind of grew up with an interest in uh, in politics. My dad was a diplomat. And during the Vietnam War, he was an investigator for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and was writing reports on the war effort, which he'd share with me. So, you know, even as a kid, I was really interested in international affairs. Uh, and I went to uh, I went to Colorado College, and I spent a year traveling around Asia. I took a year off and uh, traveled around Asia um, in um, the early 80s and got into China, got interested in that. Uh, went to the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington and um, got a master's degree in Chinese studies. Most of my colleagues from Chinese studies went on to CIA. Um, I didn't really want to do that. So um, after spending a year traveling, hitchhiking around Tibet and uh, Western China, I got a job in San Francisco working for Marshall McLennan, which is a big insurance brokerage firm. And um, that's where I discovered political risk insurance, and I thought, you know, that would be an area that I could really use my, my interest and my background. And uh, so even as a very young junior employee, I wrote them a 
proposal to uh, let me start a political risk insurance group at Marshall McLennan, and uh, they went for it, and, and that's how it all started. Wow. Usually, insurance companies you would think are not so willing to just create a whole new product, given that the, they have the stereotype of being cautious people. Yeah, no, that's right. And I mean, Marsh is a broker, so um, they have a little more flexibility in terms of doing that. But um, no, the story is quite funny. I mean, this may be boring to everybody, but um, they didn't really know what to do with me when I first joined there. And because I spoke Mandarin and had a background in Chinese studies, they had me delivering invoices to this very difficult <laughs> client who was a Chinese woman who ran a trading company, and uh, she used to shout at me every time I'd deliver the invoices that we were charging too much and why is it so expensive. And um, It was quite unpleasant, and I think it was the third or fourth time I went to see her. Um, as I was walking out, she sort of shouted at me, wait, you come back, I want to talk to you uh, about something I'm concerned about. And, and she said... Uh, 90% of my revenue comes from manufacturing shoes in Taiwan. What happens if China invades Taiwan and expropriates or destroys my factories? Um, and I sort of stupidly said, uh, you lose a lot of income? And uh, I know that, you idiot. Find me political risk insurance. I want to look at that. And so I went back to the office, and I talked to my boss, and I told him the story. And he said, you know, AIG has a political risk insurance group um, in this building, four floors below us. You should go down and see them, which I did. And uh, the lady that ran it listened to my story and sort of said, uh, boy, you, you're in the right place at the right time, young man, because I've been trying to get Marsh to do this for a while. You know, Chevron is their biggest client. They're investing a huge JV in the Soviet Republic um, of Kazakhstan, and um, you know, I'll coach you on how to how to pitch this to them, and you know, this all happened in, in one afternoon, and it sort of changed my life. And how has it changed since then? I mean, what is there? Uh, you know, a few big shifts that you've seen in the world of political risk from, I guess that was the 1980s. You said when you when you got started until today. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, I started being a broker in the 80s, and then uh, wrote a business plan. Uh, based on getting to know the underwriters pretty well. And, you know, at, the, at, the, at that time, there was only two groups that underwrote political risk insurance in the private market. There was AIG and there was Lloyds of London. And it was clear to me that the market needed a new player. So um, I persuaded my boss to give me a year and um, uh, travel budget to go around, talk to people, write a business plan. I did that. Uh, Every place I went said the same thing, which is that, yes, we would welcome a new player in the market um, that was staffed by government ECA and World Bank people and could do longer tenors and was highly rated. So that's what, that's what the business plan proposed. Um, and the business plan was successful, and we started Sovereign in, uh, in July of 1997. Um, and things have changed a huge amount since then. It's hard to even describe it. Um, you know, we've gone from three people in the political risk market to now there's about 50. Um, the market has grown tremendously. Um, the utilization of the product has grown tremendously, mainly because banks have discovered the regulatory capital benefits of using insurance. Um, and equity investors have discovered um, the beauties of having their equity investments covered against political and macroeconomic risks. 
So the you know the sophistication of the market is much bigger, and the number of players is much bigger. Could you explain a bit more about the regulatory capital benefits? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a rather esoteric and complicated um, discussion, but just for simplification purposes, it's basically rating substitution is the easiest way to think about it. So if um, a big European commercial bank is financing, um, you know, uh, uh, the construction of a road or a hospital in a country like Angola, uh, which is a single B-rated country, um, if they can take 50 of their 70 million exposure and insure it with a double A-rated insurer, they're basically turning a B-rated credit into a double A credit. Um, and they're getting a massive capital relief on that. They don't have to set aside anywhere near the amount of capital than if they didn't buy insurance on it. So that's that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but that's the basic theory. As you're doing a rating substitution, you're, you're substituting the rating of an insurer, in our case AA, for the rating of the government, uh, which is the borrower. Most of the countries that we're most active in are pretty lowly rated. I mean, there are countries like Nigeria, Kenya, Angola, Azerbaijan, Ecuador, you know, it's sort of the single to double B plus um, category of countries. So there's a huge benefit to commercial banks from buying insurance. Um, and it's good for us because you've got a, a, a client who's buying uh, insurance for reasons that are largely unrelated to, to, to fear of loss. Um, they're buying it largely because they consider us risk-sharing partners, and the insurance is basically paying for itself through the capital savings of this rating substitution. So in essence, they're able to go to the regulators and say, we don't need to set aside X many millions of dollars for this really risky product because it's insured, so we can aside, set aside a much lower level and then use that capital for other projects. Yeah. But that's basically right. The, the, the provisioning amount um, is far less if it's insured. Um, and obviously, the higher the rating of the insurer, the more bang for the buck they're getting. A lot of the challenge now is that um, there is so much accumulation, in, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, because there's so many projects being developed, there's so much lending going in, that we've hit our country limits in almost every country in sub-Saharan Africa. So we've got our core banking clients constantly coming to us saying, you know, can you help us out with 25 million in Kenya, 30 million in Ghana, and 50 million in Angola? And, you know, we have to say, no, we're full. We fit our credit limits in all three countries. How would you clarify the main difference between the private sector political insurance market and the kind of export credit agencies, and because uh, I know that they started much sooner than the private market. What what's really the difference there? Is it difference in terms of projects that they cover, or scope, or time horizon? Um, could you explain that a little bit? Sure. Um, I mean, maybe the easiest way to explain that is just a quick history of political risk insurance, because that's kind of how it was born. Um, yeah. Political risk insurance came, originally the concept was developed as part of the Marshall Plan. Following World War II, the U.S. government um, came up with um, a program to try to encourage um, American corporates and American banks to invest in the rebuilding of Western Europe, um, which in, you know, the, the 46 to 1950 period, was largely a coalition of kind of unstable governments, particularly in Italy and France, 
and American investors were very concerned about the political risk of investing in Western Europe. So the Agency for International Development came up with a, a, what they called a guarantee program that protected American investors against um, expropriation, inconvertibility, and war and political violence losses. And the product was very popular and um, continued into the 50s um, with USAID until uh, OPEC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, was formed by the U.S. government in 1969. Um, OPEC does the same thing. They're still around today, even though they've just changed their name to uh, the Development Finance Corporation. Um, so it's a national agency. It's 100% owned by the U.S. government, and its mission is to encourage U.S. overseas investment by offering investors um, political risk insurance. Um, you've also got export credit agencies, which do the same thing on sales of goods to foreign countries. So every time Boeing sells an airplane to Azerbaijani Airways or Air China, whoever it is, um, the U.S. Exim Bank is generally guaranteeing uh, the repayment risk on that. Um, so since the post-war period, pretty much every developed country has developed a national export credit agency. And the mission is, is the same. It's to, it's to um, spur export sales from the host country to emerging markets. Uh, and they do that very simply by giving um, subsidized credit and political risk insurance to their national exporters and national investors. So the mission of the ECA is, is, is fundamentally different. I mean, their, um, their mission is to um, provide um, you know, very cost-effective, as cheap as possible, subsidize insurance, um, really to support the national interest. The private political risk insurance market, of course, is, um, is there as a, as a profit-making um, profit entity. So, so the, the, the views are a little bit different. But the two markets have really come together a lot in the last, really in the last 20 years. And what would be the typical project that um, you, that the private market and the public sector agencies would be working together on? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the biggest ones was, you know, recently was a big, um, an American oil company who has a, uh, a very, very big operation in the Sinai Desert of Egypt um, with, you know, an oil and gas exploration and production entity. And you've got um, the U.S. government agency um, as well as the private market um, co-insuring that. Anything that's really kind of a multi-billion-dollar uh, developmental project, you, you need a lot of players. So you need a lot of banks to provide the debt financing. You need a lot of ECAs to provide insurance support, and then you need a lot of private insurers to su to provide support for the ECAs. Now, when I did political risk, kind of on a daily basis, uh, I was working in the more qualitative side of things, writing reports, giving forecasts. What's the usual process when you have to translate what you think is the political risk to an actual number? What's the process of going into a project and saying, okay, it is this percentage of is what we're going to charge for the premium. This percentage is what we're going to insure up to. How do you go from the qualitative, because, you know, a lot of politics and political assessments is very qualitative, to the quantitative? Yeah, that's, that's a, a, a very good question, which um, we could spend hours on. Um, 
It's one of the one of the things that makes political risk insurance uh, quite different from all other lines of insurance is that uh, it's really the only type of insurance that isn't model driven. You know, models have become so sophisticated that if you go to a big insurance company and talk to the people that underwrite windstorms and earthquakes and crop failures and liability, it's all based on models. They can plug in a zip code and come up with a coefficient number that tells them what they think tells them the likelihood that um, a hurricane is going to hit Broward County, Florida in the next you know 12 months and do X number of damage to this particular zip code. Um, when we're looking at whether you know the Kazakh government is going to expropriate a mining project or the government is, of Gabon is going to reschedule their sovereign debt because of an oil price decrease, um, or whether corruption in a country like Mozambique is going to lead to some kind of loan default, there are no models. <clears throat> um, it is, you know, it's largely intuitive and it's largely analytical. Um, and in terms of how that turns into numbers, um, it's often not very scientific. <laughs> um, you know, typical numbers for political risk equity insurance. So if somebody's building a big power project and they want to insure it for 15 years against arbitration award default, expropriation, war and political violence, you know, in a kind of C-rated um, country are going to be around 125 to 150 basis points, just kind of as a rough annual um, rate. Um, on the credit side, it's a bit easier because what we do there is we just take, we generally charge a percentage of the bank's margin. So we take the bank's net uh, net lending margin, in other words, what, what they're getting um, after their cost of capital, and we generally charge between 50 and 70% of that. And what are, um, what are some of the oddest things that you've seen in political risk projects uh, that you've worked on in the past? Uh, well, there's been, <laughs> that's a good question. Well, you know, we've seen, having done this on the underwriting side for 23 years, you see a lot of, uh, a lot of strange stuff. Um, yeah, we've had cases where, um, the wife of an African dictator has sort of taken an aircraft, which we've insured, and, um, going on a shopping trip to Paris and then not flown it back to the country where it belongs. And we've, we've had to try to figure out how to repossess it. Um, we've had mining projects that have been overrun by rebels um, in a couple of countries. We've had power projects where the offtake agreements have been um, violated and they've refused to go to arbitration and you know people have been physically thrown out of the country. Um, we've had shakedowns from former Soviet republics where they essentially say, we didn't understand <clears throat> the complexity of this loan, <clears throat> so we're defaulting, and um, uh, we would like a 40% haircut, and if that's not acceptable, we're going to walk on the whole thing. <laughs> and um, so you see some pretty bad behavior <laughs> in this business, but... Um, it's remarkable how little of that actually turns into um, to real losses. I mean, a lot of times, you know, you, you'll, you'll pay your banking client uh, for misscheduled payments, and then, you know, ultimately you can work something out with the borrower and do kind of a long-term push-out where you do eventually get a recovery. 
That's that's kind of remarkable because just the the idea of a high risk country just kind of seeds your mind for oh there's going to be a lot of projects where just there's no payment or it's nationalized or there's some problem with the payment but in overall that isn't a daily occurrence. Well, it's one of the um, it's one of the old adages of, of political risk underwriting, which is you know well structured project with good players in a very high risk country is always a better bet than the other way around. Um, so we've seen projects in really pretty stable countries um, go wrong because the players didn't understand what they were doing or that the, the structure wasn't good. Um, and we've seen, you know, we're, we're involved in some, uh, some oil projects in, um, uh, in the Kurdish Republic, which look pretty crazy but have performed spotlessly. And flawlessly. Um, same with Libya. I mean, so it, it, you know, if you have the right partners and the right structure, and most importantly, an alignment of interests, um, it almost always works out. It's very interesting to see that. Especially Libya. I mean, I know that not only is there a civil war that's been going on for seven years or eight years, but oil seems to be you'll occasionally see in headlines like a uh, key hostage from either side that you hear, you know, a militia went in and they took the oil field or they took a tanker and they're not letting it leave. But I'm guessing that eventually gets resolved before there's a mispavement. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're involved with um, a project there that, um, despite the headlines, um, has performed flawlessly for the last five years. And where do you think the industry is going now? Do you see any trends that, that you think might really shift where we are five years, ten years from now? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is going to be regulatorily driven, Chris. I mean, depending on how the next sort of series of, of um, you know, Basel um, treaties on um, bank capital are designed, um, that could have a big effect on whether banks continue to utilize our product for regulatory capital. Um, coronavirus in the short term could have a, a huge impact on the market. Um, you know, if oil stays at its current levels for a year, which seems highly unlikely, but is not impossible, um, you will probably see debt restructurings in a number of uh, oil-dependent countries um, where a lot of insurance has been written. Um, and in, in sort of a more macro level, I mean, you could sort of see the you know, the ultimate demise of the of the petrostate. Um, you know, if oil stays at this level for a long time, things are going to look very different in, in Nigeria, uh, in Angola, in Kazakhstan, Oman. You know, the, the list goes on and on. And if that should happen, if you start to see a lot of countries ha um, defaulting or trying to restructure simultaneously, is that, I'm guessing, going to put a crimp in the entire industry because... I'm, I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's only so much reinsurance you can do if all of the emerging markets start to go downhill. Yeah, I think that, that that's right. I mean, what will happen is it will be, a, um, a, in some ways, a badly needed shakeout. There's too much kind of naive capital in our market now that's taking these risks and not fully understanding, um, you know, the severity, the potential severity of them. So, yeah, if you see that, um, the big guys like us will take our lumps and continue and then ultimately seek recoveries. And the smaller players um, who don't have as much capital and aren't committed to the business 
um, will flee, and um, it'll, it'll end up being a much smaller market. Why do you think there is naive capital in, in the markets now? Well, because the, um, the political risk market has had a long um, and very good run. And so when people look at companies like ours, they think, well, you know, we can do that. And um, we hire a couple of underwriters and, um, you know, we start writing. And so um, um, that's what happens, and, and usually it, it goes okay. But um, if these are young entities, and particularly if they're part of insurance companies who are, are kind of more domestically focused, um, as soon as the first couple of claims come in, management goes, oh, geez, you know, we didn't know this could happen. <laughs> And um, and they shut it down and, and go back to doing property casualty. Well, my thanks to Price for taking the time to speak with me about this. Now, there were two things that really jumped out at me. There, first, that Price said a lot of the countries where he works in are oversubscribed. They've already hit their limits to it. And also that there is what he calls naive capital out there. And I think the two things really illustrate one of the one of the fundamental aspects of political risk as a whole, which is that there is a huge demand for good political risk knowledge, which is why in the case of insurance, there are countries that are oversubscribed. And yet it's also really difficult to do, which is why, he, as he says, there's capital in there that he thinks is going to pull out due to the coronavirus and uh, what's going to happen over the next Hopefully uh, just a few months, but more likely year to year and a half. And I think one of the reasons why that is so difficult to do is the fact is, as he puts it, there is no model for this. Political risk is inherently uncertain. It's dealing with individual actors in the cases of, of countries and governments. It's dealing with some of the more uncertain economic situations. And I think that's what we're going to be seeing over the next year is, regardless of what happens with the health outcomes, just an extraordinary amount of uncertainty as we do not know where this is. And whatever model we do have probably is not ready for a global pandemic. So thanks so much for listening. Wish I had a more optimistic note to end on than a global pandemic, but unfortunately I don't. So please uh, like, subscribe, recommend this podcast to people you know. If there are any needs you have for political risk services yourself, Two Lanterns Advisory is there to help, twolanterns.co, or you can email me personally, chris at twolanterns.co. Thanks for listening. See you next time.